Hi, this is Kim Bean, and you are listening to All Things Wolf and Wild. I was really excited to speak with today's guest that when he agreed to the podcast, I wasted no time at all to sit down and speak with him. I'm speaking of Dave Stalling. Dave's one of the coolest cats I've had the pleasure not only to speak with, but to just listen to. As a former Force Recon Marine, he is without a doubt a badass, but this badass has a deeper understanding of life and what it means to be part of the natural world. Dave understood at a young age that he was different from most hunters. He understood then, and even more so now, the need for grizzly bears and wolves, the need for complete and balanced ecosystems, and that it wasn't just about the kill, but it was about walking with nature. He understood why when he met and befriended Jim Ponzowitz, a self-described Leopoldian hunter and author of Beyond Fair Chase, The Ethic and Tradition of Hunting, a title Dave has proudly taken as his own. Dave was a conservation writer for Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's Bugle magazine for 10 years. As the organization changed from a conservationist organization to a more NRA safari club hunting organization, he stayed true to who he is, and he left. Dave's love and respect for grizzly bears comes as no surprise. He pretty much is one. So sit back, listen in, and soak up all that this man has to say. And at the end of this conversation, you'll understand why he is a man of the wilderness and a true grizzly bear. Dave, thank you so much for jumping into this discussion with me today. It has been a long time coming. I have been stalking you on <laughs> on social media, as I've said a little while ago when we were talking, and I'm just really excited to finally be able to uh, uh, sit down and, and chat with you. And so thanks for popping in with me today. Well, it's it's an honor. I, I, I like to stalk my stalkers. So I- <laughs> No, it's neutral. <laughs> we, we get along well right there, don't we? It's good. You, you got to see what the opposition's doing. So it's good. Uh, so I sent you an email. It was a manic email, as I called it, um, with some things that I wanted to talk to you about, some things that I didn't put in the email I want to talk to you about. But you've just got one hell of a bio, just who you are. I love your, um, best way to put it, you're in your face way of speaking. It's kind of who I am, which I love. Um, so I'm just going to jump on it. You are literally, you're an outdoor loving guy. You're a tree hugging fisherman, Leopoldian hunter. You are a force recon in the Marines. You are the president of Montana Wildlife Federation. You worked for Trouts Unlimited. You worked for Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, among a million other things that you've done. You're so well-rounded in the outdoor arena. So Honestly, one of the first questions I want to ask is simply, how did Dave become this outdoor enthusiast? <laughs> well, um, I credit most of it to my dad. I grew up on the Connecticut coast, and my dad, uh, who had been a World War II Marine and never finished high school, um, but had always wanted to be a forester, he was intimately familiar with all the things wild around Connecticut. He taught me all the trees and wildlife and we did a lot of fishing for striped bass off the coast of connecticut which uh are a unique species that migrate up and down the east coast and we would um when they come through in the spring and the fall we would often 
go out as the sun was setting and not come back till the sun was coming up in the morning. We'd fish all night for him off the islands. And he, uh, of course, we'd talk all night while we were fishing. And he not only understood the movement of the stripers, but he would teach me about things like uh, the importance of estuaries and salt marshes and the, uh, the egrets and the clams and crabs and everything else that, you know, lived out there and all the connections. And uh, so I guess my dad and um, that piqued my interest in things. And then I just, you know, continued studying it and reading all I can about it and experiencing all I can. I did, uh, gosh, I think I went on my first solo backpack trip in the winter in the White Mountains of New Hampshire when I was 15. Wow. And uh, I remember my parents arguing about that. My mom didn't want <laughs> I could handle it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was also involved in Boy Scouts and I was an Eagle Scout and just um, really developed a strong love and passion for for wild things. So. That's, you know, so your dad was your earliest education. I mean, not just not just showing you how to fish and teaching you how to fish, but understanding the the, um, you know, the diversity of around where you were at and understanding how these animals um, migrated in and out and so on and so forth. So you had a really early education just in that from your dad. That's pretty yeah. amazing. He, he became really both angry and sad, which I can really, really late, relate to now as he watched, you know, um, estuaries and salt marshes being filled in and developed. He would get very sad and point out, uh, oh, I remember there was a big fancy golf course not far from our home that he would tell me stories how when he was a kid, it was a salt marsh and he'd go in there and catch snapper bluefish and blue crabs. And uh, it was very sad that it had been filled in and turned into a golf course. And uh, and he became very active in um, traveling up and down the New England coast, pushing for uh, the protection of striped bass. And back in those days, there were a lot of PCBs being put into the, uh, the Hudson Bay and the Chesapeake Bay where striped bass... Uh, mm you know, spawn and spend the first three or four years of their life. And um, stripers were declining. He noticed that we were catching lots of really big striped bass, which most fishermen want to catch. But he noticed that there were fewer, fewer small striped bass every year. And, you know, he uh, he didn't have a formal education, but he understood things and he saw the connection that this was not good. And and he so he also fought to protect the things that he loved and cherished. So, so that- yeah, I got that from him. <laughs> that's pretty, that's amazing though. You know, we don't, sometimes I, you know, I think we grab a lot from our upbringing, but to actually have a parent that instilled so much of who you are today, if you think about it, um, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Was, was your dad a military? You said he was a military man as well. Cause you went into the Marines. What, what age were you when you went into the Marines? I was actually 21. My dad was a World War II Marine. He fought on Iwo Jima, Saipan, Tinian. Oh, really my gosh. Horrible battles. And, uh, and of course, you know, he didn't want me joining the Marine Corps. I bet he didn't. He was very upset when I did. And my mom said one of the only times she ever saw him cry is when he found out I got into Force Recon because, uh. you know, that's the Marine's sort of special ops. And uh, he did not want me doing that. But, uh, but, you know, he was also proud of me. So it was that kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, Force Recon... I mean, Dave, those are some badass boys. That, that <laughs> well, we, then we are, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, first and foremost, thank you so much um, for your service, and I mean that completely and wholeheartedly. You know, just looking around, what's happening in our world today with 
Ukraine and everything else and just how painful to we you know just all, the wars we've been in constantly and you know the pain that that brings and and um you know so we're I thank at, you for that weren't you in the air force I was I was I was in the air force I um <laughs> I was in the air force I I was one of those young kids I went into actually I I went into the military to get out of Cheyenne Wyoming where I was born and raised and to actually get away from family for personal reasons. I thought that was the way to get out from underneath the clutches of family that didn't understand the whole gay issue, to be honest with you. So I went in for all the wrong reasons. But um, yes, I was in the Air Force. And uh, unfortunately, they hated me enough that they sent me right back to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Oh, that's so it was quite unfortunate because I thought it would get me away and let me go and, and you know, play amongst the different countries and everything else. And they were like, you know what? You're a mouthy kid. You can go back home. And so I, you know, anyway, so I ended up back in Cheyenne again. So, um, but that's okay. I, I went in, I got out. I, I think if I look back, I really should have treated it differently. But as a kid, I was like, just get me out of this. So, but yeah, not a Marine and I didn't do anything fun. So, you know, it's funny. I'm, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a wise guy with this, but sometimes when people say thank you for your service, I joke and I kind of want to say, uh, why are you thanking me? Did you work for Halliburton? <laughs> no, she- <laughs> oh, God. Oh, the red trucks, the red <laughs> trucks. I know, what the, it's, I know people mean well, but sometimes I don't know what to think about it. Well, but, uh, you know what? You're do- you did stuff. And I mean, what? What? where were okay. you stationed? I know you did some pretty uh, pretty active duty stuff, so... Well, we were based out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, but we traveled all over. We were involved in uh, operations back in those days. It was all during the Reagan years. Yeah. Stuff and uh, the Beirut bombing. uh, Mm. uh, 225 fellow Marines were killed in Beirut. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we spent time in the Middle East and Central America and, you know, all those things that as I'm older now and look back and understand history better sometimes question our involvement in what we were really doing but um you know that's <laughs> that's the downfall of being a veteran you start if you start questioning things but uh i think it's the main reason i, I got out I, I you know that old uh quote ours is not to question why ours is to do and die well i started questioning why too much i think that's why i left i think we need to question why a lot yeah. And I think maybe that's, again, what makes you who you are and what I have um, found to be so intriguing about you is you are so, I mean, you if you look at your, your, um, your history, if you want to look at it that way, but looking at your life um, and the little snippets that I have heard of and read and watched and <laughs> listened to and so on and so forth, um, you have a very deep understanding of a lot of things. And I think that from your youth with your dad, right, through your military days, which to me I think make you grow up a little too fast and make you see things that I don't think anybody should have to see and go through. And um, I don't know if you ever really get through any of it, but live with. So, and then, you know, next thing you know, you come back, you're a civilian again, and you start, working for wildlife places, right? I mean, you, 
what you were part of uh, uh, the Forest Service for a bit. You did, you know, your stints, but you went and you worked for um, you were a conservation editor for Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, right? I am. Um, well, I'll back up. I got a forestry degree in the before I went in the Marine Corps, a two-year associate's degree at a small college called Paul Smith College up in the Adirondack Mountains of northern New York. Oh, wow. Okay, good. A pretty cool hands-on school. Back in those days, a hard hat and axe and steel-toed boots were required. <laughs> it was, uh, you were wow. assigned your own civil culture plots that you, you managed for certain, you know, products and things like that. And, um, it was a unique school. I got in a lot of trouble. I, uh, I got, uh, <laughs> Why do I find that to be so true? I got too many fights and drank too much. And uh, I graduated, but barely. I was on, I think, like they said in Animal House, double secret probation before I got out. <laughs> I, uh, In fact, I was, was going to be thrown out, and then people came to my rescue, including a professor that liked me. And so I, I managed to hang in there, and I... I graduated, but it was funny because I was doing a lot of crazy stuff. Like um, I jumped off a 120 foot bridge. I wrecked a lot of cars. I was drinking. I was fighting, and and everybody was looking at me, saying, uh, "What's wrong with this kid?" You know, except the Marine Corps recruiters. <laughs> yeah, they're like, <laughs> they, "He's the guy." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I kind of ended up in the Marine Corps. I thought, "Hey, the recruiters like me," so you know, off I went and. uh but then, yes, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I moved to Montana. Um, and mostly because by then I had just read and heard so much about the wilderness that still mm -hmm. remains. Uh, those were things I wanted to be part of. So I ended up going to the University of Montana. I got a degree in journalism. Uh, and then I did. I ended up working for the Forest Service. And then I spent a brief time with a newspaper, and then I went to the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, where I was a conservation editor of their, their magazine, Bugle, for 10 years, which is the longest I've ever held on to any one job, I think. So, And it's interesting. And this is, I think, my biggest question for the RMEF um, portion of your life is, you know, you work for them as a conservation editor. And I'm curious of your thoughts. This is a, this is a big question in my own head, but I've what your thoughts are of, on Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation past to present. Um, and as I like to call it, the conservation time frame to the extermination time frame. And that's just me because I think they've changed a lot, but I'm really curious as to how you view Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for when you were involved with them. And even before that to where they stand today. That's a good question. I am. Um... It's a tough one because I think it's a combination of they changed dramatically, but I also started changing. So, you know, you sort of drift apart. And, um, however, back in the days I was working for the Elf Foundation, they had some um, tremendously great people working there that I consider, um, and, and I'll back up for a second. I, I had a good friend named Jim Posowitz uh, who died last year, but, um, he was kind of a leader in the hunting and hunting ethics world. He wrote Beyond Fair Chase, mm. The Ethics of Hunting, and, uh, and a lot of other books. And um, we had become good friends early on. And he was like a father to me, a mentor, a great thinker, a great guy, a funny guy. Um, and one time we were sitting in a bar and we were having a beer. 
And I was telling him how I didn't really fit in the hunting world with all these hunters. I didn't know why, even though I was a passionate hunter and killed elk every year with my bow. And uh, he kind of looked around to make sure nobody was listening, kind of pretending, you know, tongue in cheek. He was sort of smiling and he leaned close to me and said, you know why, Dave? And I said, why? And he said, because you and I, we're Leopoldians. I love and there that. aren't around <laughs> well of course he was referring to aldo leopold author of same county almanac and considered the like the founder of modern wildlife management who uh and so i always use that term now that's where i got that from the leopoldians well back then at the elk foundation there were a lot of leopoldians working there guys like alan christensen and gary wolf and uh, mm, gary good man people who were just great thinkers and really really passionate about wildlife and conservation and not just hunting it wasn't a hunting group it was a a truly a conservation group to protect winter critical wintering range and migratory corridors that and when you protect those things of course you're not protecting it just for elk you're protecting it for wolves and grizzlies and everything else right but there was this constant tension with what i call the nra safari club side of things mm-hmm. the, the boy babas who who care more about what they're going to shoot than, you know, healthy ecosystems. And there was a constant tension. Um, in fact, working for Bugle Magazine, I'll give you a couple examples. Back in those days, um, we didn't allow ATV ads. And I wrote a series of articles on bull elk vulnerability, which basically looked at the impacts hunters were having on elk and ecosystems and the need to uh, protect mature bulls and protect bull to cow ratios, which were declining in places. And how ATVs were destroying uh, not only wildlands, but hunting and hunting ethics and things like that. Right. So a lot of the board members and members were angry about that. They were constantly complaining that we were, you know, too green weenie too, for them, too, you know, a bunch of tree huggers. Mm-hmm. But the leaders of the place, like Gary Wolf, stood up for us and uh, defended us. You know, there were a lot of calls to get me fired for some of the stuff. We wrote. In fact, I wrote a series of articles about the uh, how elk co-evolved with wolves, and wolves shaped everything we love about elk. Were shaped by co-evolving with wolves, and and published factual things about wolves, about how. Uh, oh, for example, there was a study done in Canada uh, where they looked at a herd of elk. I think near Riding National Park that was living in an area where there were no wolves mm-hmm. and a similar herd of elk in a place where there were. And what they found was um, that the mortality in those elk herds, the number of elk dying every year was pretty equal. Um, you know, in one herd where there were no wolves, there were maybe more elk dying of winter kill and the wolves where there, you know, there were wolves, there were more elk dying from wolves, <laughs> but in the long run, it was uh, it was similar, and, and to use biological terms, they found that the um, mortality was uh, with wolves was uh, compensatory, not additive. You know. Oh wow! Okay. Yep. Yeah, and and so we were publishing a lot of that kind of stuff. Well, people were getting really angry because you know a lot of hunters hate wolves, <laughs> and truth doesn't matter for a lot of them. So they. they there was a lot going on, and then the, in some, the board of directors was sort of taken over by the uh, Safari Club uh, NRA crowd, for lack of a better word, the mm-hmm. sort of bubbles. Uh, 
one day we, we, we called it black Monday. One day we came into work and all the really good guys like Jerry Wolf and Alan Christensen, they were, they were fired. Mm-hmm. And I left. Uh, yeah. I packed my bags. I said, I can't, you know, work under the new leaf. They were replaced with big businessmen and NRA types and Safari club types. And, uh, and then interestingly enough, soon after that, maybe a year or two, they, um, they started really coming out uh, against wolves. In fact, their executive director at the time, who came from NASCAR, for uh-huh. real, uh, he was saying things like wolves are the worst ecological disaster since the decimation of bison. Another thing he said was, uh, Wolves are decimating our elk herds. Mm-hmm. We kill all the wolves, and we're, and he literally said, like, when we're done with the wolves, we need to go after the grizzlies. Yep. Mr. So Allen. I wrote a, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, when I worked at the Elk Foundation, I had developed an annual award with the uh, with the cooperation of Gary Wolf, who I think the world of. He's an incredible guy. Amazing man. He's amazing man. Gary. Uh, I, I ran the idea by him, and he told me to run with it. We developed an annual award called the Olas J. Murray Award. Olas J. Murray was this great uh, biologist and naturalist back in, like, the 1920s and 30s who did a lot of elk research. And he and his brother also did research on wolves and, and all kinds of stuff. They were great thinkers. Um, in fact, you might remember Marty Murdy, Murray, who lived into her 90s, I think. Yes, she was, she was also a great naturalist and conservationist, and that was Olaf J. Murray's, uh, you know, widow. Well, um, it was called the Olaf J. Murray Award, and it went to a professional like wildlife biologists who went above and beyond and really promoted healthy uh, ecosystems and wildlife and knowledge about wildlife. Um, well, after the Elk Foundation changed and they became anti-wolf, uh, the Olaf J. Murray family asked the Elk Foundation to stop using that name because it was an embarrassment to what Olas J. Murray believed. Wow. And so they did. And as the creator of the Olas J. Murray, what I ended up writing an essay that got kind of widely published. It was in High Country News, Writers on the Range, and others. Really critical. I think they titled it something like a, <laughs> a good group gone bad. And uh, I basically ended up just writing about how they had changed and that was sort of the beginning of me being kind of shunned from the hunting community. I really, uh, you know, the hunting community is strange. It's very, um, you're either with us or against us. Very you clicky. Trust. And if you start questioning things, you can really be booted out. Um, in fact, I was banned from ever writing for Bugle again. And uh, I was called an anti-hunter and a tree hugger and a green I mean, it's just on and on and on and on. Um, and, and so... In my opinion, and sadly, sadly, the membership grew tremendously because that's what hunters wanted to hear, you know. Uh, they were appealing to, uh, you know, Aldo Leopold once referred to, you, you got to appeal to the lowest common denominator. That's what they were doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. They gained membership, they gained support, and they became even more rabid anti-wolf. Today, they uh, they continue to bash wolves and criticize the uh, protection of wolves and they even help pay bounties on wolves. <laughs> pay bounties on wolves. So, you know, to be blunt, uh today I think they're an absolutely disgusting group. They yeah. <laughs> that is nothing like they used to be. Um 
and in fact represents everything that's gone wrong with hunting and hunter-driven so-called conservation. Um, you know, I just thought of something that kind of sums it up. When Gary Wolf was reading the leading the Elk Foundation, he used to say, "We're not a hunting organization. We're a conservation group made up of a lot of hunters." <laughs> well, now their motto is something like, uh, "Hunting is conservation." Yeah, there's a big which, difference. <laughs> which is ridiculous. Hunting's not yeah, conservation. Exactly. Hunting's only conservation. Hunting can be done well with respect to life and done ethically. It's it's it can be a sustainable way to, you know, get food if you live in the right area. Right. <laughs> but not conservation. In fact, uh, if I'm not rambling too much, you know, it gets to the heart of what uh, is going on because these hunters and these hunter groups control the system they through their license fees and excise taxes on hunting equipment which they love to brag is uh i've even you know bragged about it contributing to conservation but because of that that's what controls the state wildlife agencies and because they control the state wildlife agencies the, the wildlife agencies are going more and more towards uh as leopold said producing things to shoot at um right. To the detriment of other wildlife, like our native wolves. And, um, you know, because there's this perception that, uh, oh, we got to have more elk for hunters to shoot. So let's get rid of the wolves. And which in itself isn't even accurate, but truth doesn't matter to these people. And so these organizations, these groups, the, the hunting industry, the gun manufacturers, the uh, gadget manufacturers, the, the folks who make all the technology, um, you know, they all control the messages and the wildlife management today. And um, the back to the Elk Foundation, they're, they're part of that now. And uh, they're basically like a branch of the NRA and Safari Club now, you know. Yeah, I but find it interesting because of that, right? I mean, we've got one group that used to be all about, it was about conservation. And, and you're right, going back to the Gary Wolf days in your day. They were an organization that were about conservation, and at, that's the perfect statement coming from Gary and how the, the RM, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was viewed. Alan gets in charge, and it turns into a money-making organization, and I think that's what brought him in was just that ability to make money. And they changed the narrative. But it's no – I mean, they've purchased Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. They can write a check for $50,000 to go kill wolves, you know? Oh, yeah. It's amazing to me how they they are you know they can purchase um, that's great money they've got coming in, but they can purchase state organizations, state agencies to exactly. further their agenda. Yeah, and and not only that, when they're doing that, they uh, they win over more and more of the bubble hunters, <laughs> the ones who. Uh, you know, don't really think and don't understand wildlife. You know, it's great irony that you'll often hear hunters say things like, oh, those wolf lovers and grizzly lovers, they, they're all from the big city and they don't understand yeah. wildlife. Yeah. And most hunters I know are more detached from wildlife than, 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 than anything. You know, they might live here, but they don't get it and understand it. And uh, But that's a little bit of a tangent, I guess. That's a little bit of a rant there. But, uh, well, so I'm a ranter. 
I still hunt. I still kill and eat elk. But I'm really kind of drifted away from the hunting community. I jokingly tell friends that I am an anti-hunter who hunts. <laughs> but I think there's a difference, though. I think there's a difference between, and you hit it. There's, there's the the hunt, like you said. You've got these guys that that um, they're so detached from nature that they kill things. I don't think they're hunters. I mean, I grew up in Wyoming, and I have a family that hunts. And, you know, it's it's part of the experience. And I, I want you to explain something because I don't know if everybody really understands the Aldo Leopold and who he was and all that. But, you know, the Leopoldian hunter, what is the difference, just to explain to the audience, what is the difference between that and a hunter that you see today or as I just call them killers or people with guns? Oh, gosh, I can't really speak for Leopold, of course. And, uh, you know, in my older years, I've even come to sort of question some of his work, but I think that's healthy. Um, another little tangent, but a friend of mine who's an anti-hunter <laughs> doesn't understand why I hunt at times, but we have wonderful conversations. Uh, do you know Judy Malone, by chance? I know the name, but I'm not sure I can pinpoint uh, she runs a wonderful group called Tourists Against Trophy Hunters. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. I know who she is. Great. She's a very wonderful, intelligent woman. We have great conversations. And she introduced me to a writer from Canada named John A. Livingston, uh, who died, I think, maybe in the 60s or 70s. But he was sort of the Rachel Carlson of Canada, this great thinker and writer and philosopher and professor. And he wrote a fascinating book called The Fallacy of Wildlife Conservation. And he and Rachel Carlson were a bit critical of Leopold, but in, in a healthy way. I think they questioned each other and they challenged each other to think. But back to your question, because lately I've been reading a lot of John Livingston and he's got me thinking about a lot of stuff. But I think what it comes down to is, uh, you know, when you live somewhere like Montana, and you live close to the wilds and the mountains. Uh, I think going out and killing an elk or a deer can be a sustainable way to live. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, if done correctly and done with, with respect and ethics, and even I wonder, and it's a struggle. Uh, Edward Abbey once said, uh, hunting is such a difficult thing to, to think about, never mind talk about. Mm, mm -hmm. and it is it's tough i mean how do you say you respect an animal and then you go end its life and it, it is an odd thing and, and i question that at times but um on the other hand uh you know there's a lot of grasses and forbs out there in the wilds near my home that aren't palatable edible for humans but you know but elk eat it and they convert it to protein and i kill an elk and i eat that elk it, it, i don't think it's it, i'm touching on sensitive territory here, but I don't think it's all that different than the Native Americans who lived on this land and pursued the bison and lived off bison. Um, I agree. So, and I've had good talks with friends of mine who are part of the Blackfeet Nation who, who feel that way. But I think what it comes is, is that's, um, that sort of comes from healthy functioning ecosystems. Whereas the more safari club nra types they're looking at it more like we want something to shoot at this is here for us mm -hmm. um, 
and we need to get rid of these wolves and the grizzlies, and we need to make things safe, and we need to make it easy so we could drive up the road in our ATV and kill an elk with the freezer. We can brag about it, show everybody our trophies and enter the trophy books. And it's, you know, that's not, that's that's the opposite of Leopoldian. That's not, uh, for me, the first most important thing is is healthy, functioning ecosystems with a diversity of wildlife, including the wolves and the grizzlies and the mountain lions. Um, if it came to a point where I had a choice between never hunting again or wanting to protect a healthy functioning ecosystem with wolves, I'd never hunt again because, you know, that's that's their land. We haven't given grizzlies and wolves much space. We've destroyed almost everything they ever had. Uh, they've got a little teeny bit left now, <laughs> and yeah. we ought to leave it there. Yeah. And, you know, but I also don't think a lot of the Safari Club NRA-type hunters fully understand how... Uh, you know, predators shape the landscape. It shapes the elk we love to pursue. Um, for example, uh, the area I hunt um, on the Bitterroot National Forest in wilderness areas, and I, I like to go pretty far back in the wilderness, although I feel like I'm getting old. <laughs> mm-hmm. I hear you. I, I developed an odd way of, of hunting. I call it the force recon method. I, I carry a... Um, when I first started hunting elk, and, and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll back up for a second, because I made a study of elk when I came out here. I was obsessed with them. I tend to be kind of an obsessive guy. And I got a copy of Elk in North America, Ecology and Management, and Olas Murray's original elk. And I would get up every morning before work and read from those like I was studying the Bible, you know? Wow. And I also got out in the wilds year-round to, to watch elk and learn about elk and learn about the, the wilds and the habitat and everything that sustains them. And I just absolutely you know, became enamored with these animals. And pursuing them became part of that And uh, in the fall. And um, I think the first time I went elk hunting, I, I hiked out and set up a little backpacking tent. And I, I started wandering the mountains and I got into some elk and it started getting dark. And I was like 10, 12 miles from my tent. And I spent the whole night kind of stumbling back to my tent. <laughs> Oops. And I thought, well, this is silly. I should hunt like we ran patrols in Force Recon. Travel light, freeze at night was our motto. So I uh, I packed a really light pack. And I, um, I didn't want to build a fire and cook food. So I just carried like jerky and energy bars. And instead of a heavy shelter, I just carried like a poncho. And a uh, poncho liner, you know, like from the military. Mm-hmm. And I took off. And that way I thought, well, wherever I am when it gets dark, I can just sleep. <laughs> well, the first time I did that, the temperatures dropped and a snowstorm blew in. And oh, I was my gosh. It just froze. I remember thinking, you know, when you're on a force recon patrol, you got three or four guys. You huddle up and one guy stays on watch and throws off four poncho, poncho liners on the pile and body he keeps you all warm when you're alone that doesn't work and i remember spending a whole lot of push-ups and stomping <laughs> but anyways i ended up kind of developing that from there i got a real light weight gore-tex waterproof warm sleeping bag that's all light. i ended up being able to keep my pack at about eight pounds and i could go out for a week and just sleep wherever i was when it was dark quite often i'd sleep around the elk you know 
Wow. I'd be bugling elk and it would start getting dark and I might climb under a big subalpinfer or spruce and uh, set up my poncho as like a shelter and climb into my sleep bag and then get up before sunup and continue the pursuit. I'd hear elk bugling around me all night. And, uh, one night there was a full moon and I woke up because I sensed something was looking at me in there. Maybe 10 yards from me was a mountain lion looking at me. I could see Ooh. him or her in the moonlight. And, I, you know, I tried to start falling in love with all that. Um, and I could go on and on, encounters with grizzlies and mountain lions. And, you know, and, and through that, I just kind of developed, I think, a very intimate connection to the wilds, which developed this passion to want to protect all things wild. And I think in some, that kind of sums up the Leopoldian sort of way. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. I think it's... For what you kill. The passion is for, um, you know, maintaining the wild. Yeah, yeah. Just like I could go out and pick huckleberries or maybe catch a cutthroat and eat it, you know, I can put some elk meat in the freezer. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, you're sustaining yourself as well, but you have a love affair with how... I mean, like you said, the recon aspect, you're, you're tracking and it's part of that, right? I mean, to me, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a meat eater. I'm not, I'm, I'm not vegan or vegetarian, but you know, I, I'm also not a hunter, but the thing I love the most about being in wild country and being in the back country and just to watch, for me, watching wolves is I want to know, and bears and, you know, I'm a carnivore. I love apex predators, but to watch them and try to know what they're going to do next. You know, I want to know how they think and how they move and, and who does what. I mean, I'm intrigued by wildlife and how they survive in such extreme situations. You know, we as humans, we're horrible. We couldn't do that in so many ways. And to me, that's what I love about wildlife is to, I want to know, I would love to be able to, storybook, you know, sit down and talk to a wolf and, and, and know, you know, that kind of a thing. So the best way to do that is to pursue that, but not with a gun, you know, that kind of a thing. And it's no oh. different with elk and, and deer and, you know, skunks and you name it. I'm, I'm in love with that wilderness and the sounds and the smells of the wild and, and all of those things. And that, that's what I think is important about I think the way you look at things, and as you said, if you had that choice, if you had to make a choice, you would put down the gun so that we could have these, you know, these incredible environments and ecosystems to make them complete. But exactly. I think we can live in, in as you said, as the, the American Indians, the Native Americans, that, that symbiotic relationship. And I think we need to find a way to that, but we have so many people on the landscape that are entitled. And I think you pinpointed that with the way, as you put it, the NRA um, Safari Club style uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, which is, it's mine and I'm entitled to kill it and have it and don't tell me because I've got the money and I'll show you it's mine. You know, that kind of a thing that's happening right now. Yeah. And sadly, um, you know, even some of the better hunting groups, like backcountry hunters and anglers started off with pretty good intentions. But, but every hunting group I've ever been part of and ever looked at ends up getting sucked into that same thing. You then get the sponsors, 
Yeah. You got to promote the technology and the industry, and then you got to appeal to the lowest common denominator, and you become a hunter. Club, and next thing you know, uh, for example, backcountry hunters and anglers, they don't jump on the bandwagon. They're not saying we need to kill all the wolves. They're not bashing the wolves, but they're also not defending them. Right. I'm trying and inform people. Uh, there's a quote from Leopold, uh, and I don't remember exactly, so I'm going to paraphrase here, but he basically said uh, that the game and fish that the game and fish agencies are just producing things to shoot at. The gadget gears are just you know, trying to make it easier to shoot things, and there are no leaders to tell hunters what's wrong. Mm, mm-hmm. And there really isn't. And if you try to be that leader, <laughs> you're you're given the boot. <laughs> Yeah, you'll be cut down pretty quick. And it's really too bad because there is an agenda. And, you know, I want to get, I'll get into that in a little bit because I think that um, my thoughts and feelings as to where we're headed are a little frightening. And I really, really can't wait to hear what you think about that. But, you know, when it came, when it came to groups, I mean, you also, you, you were the president of um, the Montana Wildlife Federation. You know, I I mean, when you... When you go into that, what was your thought? I mean, as president, you have, you know, what were your thoughts that you want to do? The, uh, you know, what was your agenda? What was your goals? And, and did you reach those goals? And again, I'm going to say the same thing. Where do you feel uh, the Federation was and is today? Um, you know, that's interesting. I, the Montana Wildlife Federation is one of the affiliates of the National Wildlife Federation. Right. Um, that goes way back you know, to the early days of conservation, the days of Theodore Roosevelt and all that. And uh, I think most states have an affiliate club. Mm-hmm. And then it's interesting because those state affiliates then have affiliate clubs around the state. Like the Montana Wildlife Federation has 30 some odd clubs around the state of Montana. Like Butte uh, Anaconda Sportsmen, Hellgate Hunters and Anglers, which is a group I helped found here in Missoula, uh, you know, anaconda sportsmen, those sorts of things. And it's an interesting concept because it's sort of this big wide cast net and affiliates where there's constant tension between the, you know, kind of the good old boy hunting and fishing clubs and, and then the Montana wildlife fishing up to the national wildlife fishing. And they, they do a lot of good. And I think they still did. I got involved because back in those days, elk ranching was becoming a big thing in Montana. Mm, mm-hmm. The private fenced enclosed elk, where rich people paid a cup, shoot up behind fences. Right. And there was one near where I was living at the time in Darby, Montana, and I became absolutely disgusted by that. And um, I started learning more and more about it. And uh, there's so many issues related to it. They, 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 there's always escapes. You know, a tree crawl, falls across the fence, and elk escape, and they can hybridize with our wild elk. Because they're enclosed in small areas and bunched up, they're more susceptible to various diseases like tuberculosis, uh, mm-hmm. chronic waste disease, cryptosporidium, uh, and so diseases were breaking out, elk were escaping. And that initially what got me involved with the Montana Wildlife Federation because they were the only group really speaking out against it. And to make a long story short, we did end up organizing a strong effort back in 2000 uh, called the Game Farm Initiative I-143. Our motto was I-143, kelp, keep elk wild and free. Yep, I remember it. And another was real hunters don't shoot pets. And we won, amazingly. <laughs> we won that. I don't think we would today. But uh, 
people rallied to the cause and we put an end to game farming in Montana. It's one of my more proud accomplishments. And, um, and I didn't agree with everything the Wildlife Federation did. And sometimes the meetings would get pretty heated uh, of all the board members. But overall, I love the concept of bringing diverse people together to find a common cause. Like my friend Jim Poswitz used to say, if, uh, if we all agreed, there only need to be one of us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, so true. And we'd have great debates and great challenges. And, um, and I still think the Montana Wildlife Federation is doing a lot of good stuff. And I still think they try to promote a good ethical Leopoldian way of thinking. But now, jump ahead a few years, I, I served as president of the board. Then I went off and did other things. And then a few years ago, I came back and was hired to be uh, on the staff as a field director. And they had an executive director who I don't think liked me too much. And I, my views got out about grizzly bears. I, I wrote a piece about how why we shouldn't be hunting grizzlies. And uh, I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you went against the grain again. Way to go, Dave. Yeah. Well, because, you know, in that particular instance, the things I was saying were against their policies. So, right. yeah, I, I get it. I understand it. Uh, I didn't like that executive director. He's now gone. And uh, I'm not part of that group anymore, but I see a lot of stuff they're doing, and I, I often support it. I'm not with them on predators. They do support wolf hunting, and they do yep. support delisting and hunting grizzlies. And that goes against everything we know about the science and ecology of those species. And uh, so anyways, uh, I've come to... Uh, to admire them but not part of it anymore so do you believe that or what do you think not believe do you think that the same thing with uh federation and everybody else all these different hunting organizations or conservation organizations whatever they want to call themselves this inability to break away and say no Science does not dictate we need to hunt wolves. Science does not dictate that we need to be hunting grizzly bears. No, we want to stick with science. Why do you think these organizations or these groups refuse to stand away from the status quo with the safari clubs and so on and so forth? Why, why is it that that's the case? Well, I do think groups like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and the Montana Wildlife Federation are far apart from Safari Club NRA. I would never put them in that category. Right. But they still won't yep. stand up. They still won't stand out and say, yeah. this isn't okay. Why? Why Why do you think that I, is? Two reasons, I think. Uh, and they're related. One, number one is they'll, uh, I just think they would lose too much of their support. Money. The hunters wouldn't support them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then two, maybe there's three reasons. <laughs> I don't know. One, two, I can't. <laughs> I've always been that fast, by the way. There so, are reasons. <laughs> two, three, I don't know. But Whatever. anyways, they would lose support. Uh, two, and this is a weird thing. Sometimes when these groups, like uh, the Montana Wildlife Federation and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the better of the so-called sort of sportsmen's groups, mm -hmm. When they start speaking out about things like, you know, 
we need to understand the science and maybe we shouldn't kill all the wolves or, or even at times protecting wilderness, designating wilderness, et cetera. Um, the other more extreme groups have a term for it now. You might have heard. They call them uh, the green decoys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oops, I think I lost you there. Nope, you're here. Are you with me? Yeah, they call them green decoys. In other words, what they're trying to say is they're not really hunters. They're like funded by these big East Coast environmental tree huggers. Ah. And they're just trying to fool you. Don't listen to them. They're, they're green decoys. They're just, uh, and that became a big thing recently. Like, uh, you're not really one of us. You're, you know, it's like, I don't care how many elk you killed. You're not a hunter. And uh, huh. it's just weird. And, and in response to that, Instead of proudly saying, no, we are hunters, and God damn it, we love wilderness, um, they like capitulate to it a little bit. They don't want to prove those guys right, so they're very careful. I think it's, and, and this is, you know, I think this is the concern that I have, is that we don't, you know, so to just kind of propel into the next question, I guess, but my feelings and thoughts on the wolf issue, um, and to widen that, the predator issue in the Western states, it's more of a public lands issue. And in my feeling, uh, I feel that it's the want to privatize these lands for profit. And that, that encompasses all of us, right? The non-consumptive and the consumptive land user. So how, and, and I don't know what your feelings are on that, but I truly see that's, in my mind, I see that's where we're headed is you've got outfitters and, and uh, you know, all these people that are trying to privatize our public lands to make a lot of money. You know, that's why, I don't know if you've heard it lately, but they're starting to call Montana on Texas because Texas lands, I mean, if you want to go hunt on land down there, you spend a whole lot of money, you know, to these private landowners. And yep. so that's kind of where, where I feel we're headed and we've watched it kind of growing over the years. And at some point in time, the consumptive and non-consumptive land user has got to get together and sit down, as you said, multiple ideas and different minds and um, coming at it from different angles and places. But we've got to be able to sit down and say, how the hell do we stop this? Because we're going to lose in the end and big money's going to win. And the people like the Safari Clubs and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundations who are purchasing our, you know, our state agencies um, are going to make make the uh, um, the decisions for what happens on these lands, and they already are in so many ways. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel that that's where we're headed and what's going on, and how the hell do we combat this? You know, how do we alter the trajectory? You know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, well, I'll get right to it, but, but I want to back up again, too. It's funny because when, uh, when Aldo Leopold organized the very first game conferences in the United States back in the 1920s, there was a big battle between what they called literally the Pennsylvania system versus the Texas system. <laughs> the, the, wow. That's really what it was called. The, and the Pennsylvania system was, they, they called it that because Pennsylvania was the first state in the nation to come up with hunting and fishing licenses and use that money to then buy and, and protect lands for the public to use. Hmm. Wow. Where at the time, Texas was going the opposite. You know, private landowners fencing off their lands and uh, raising animals for people to come shoot. <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, fortunately for most of the country, the Pennsylvania system kind of won out. But I still think that struggle is going on. And um, 
we're seeing it all the time. And um, that is a place where we can find common ground with hunters and environmentalists because there are a lot of concerned hunters in Montana that are part of the Montana Wildlife Federation. One of their biggest issues is trying to defend the public trust and protest the privatization of wildlife like right. that. The problem is that because we hunters are controlling all the state wildlife agencies, you know, in some ways they're now managing our public lands to produce more and more things to shoot at to mm-hmm. the detriment. So yeah, it's an odd thing. Um, are, are you familiar? You must be the the North American model of wildlife conservation. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, our topic to me because um. I never heard that growing up because it didn't exist. Valerius Geist, a biologist up in Canada, uh, wrote an essay back in like 1980. I think it was around 1985, that time period, outlining the principles that made wildlife conservation successful right. in North America. And he called it the North American model of wildlife conservation. Yep. But you hear hunt, some hunters like the Elk Foundation talk about it today. You think uh, Moses created it on the mountain, and it's like you know biblical. It's like if you even question it, you're you're sacrilege. It's it's a weird thing. And the funny thing is, if you look at the principles, one is uh, you know that wildlife management be based on science. Yes. Use <laughs> all the parts of the animals. Another, um, and of course, all those principles are being ignored, particularly with predators. Um. But this ties into it because I think it's a model that does reflect why we've had success in the past. It's why we do have large wilderness areas and lots of public lands and national forests and elk and grizzlies and wolves roaming, you know, still roaming places out here. But I also think it's a model, and I've been involved in efforts with this, it's a model that needs to be reformed. What? Uh, Meaning like the seven sisters and and going through that conservation aspect. Nobody's living by those anymore. Yeah, and it's also, it's it's not allowing, um, you know, it's basically hunters and the agricultural communities that are controlling the state fish and game departments. Right. The bizarre twist, and there's nothing in law that states this, there's just this informal agreement forever between the, the federal land management the Forest Service and the BLM and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Wildlife Service, that they're responsible for managing the land, but the states are responsible for the wildlife. Right. Which is why we can have hunters going out on our federal national forest lands and wilderness and trapping and killing wolves. Mm-hmm. And in unsustainable manners, and grizz- and now they want to go after the grizzlies, and um, and I don't know. That's what's got to change. More people need to be involved in the decision making. More, we got to get back to the the science, and even some of the science that the state agencies use, it's science geared towards um, sustainable painting hunting opportunities. I, I plugged my phone in because it's getting low. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm like, we're getting a little bit of phone noise in there, but that's okay. I can still hear you. We're good. Um, you know, for example, uh, uh, there's good science out there that shows uh, if you have a lack of mature bulls in an elk herd or low bull-to-cow ratios, it affects your breeding behavior. Mm-hmm. And that breeding behavior can affect uh, calving, 
and when calves are born and the time of year they're born, whether or not they get this flooding strategy where they're born all at once and overcome predation or if they're born over a longer period of time. And it's good science, but all of that science is geared towards how can we best manage this herd so there's opportunity for hunters. Right. You see what I mean? It's not, um, you know, on the flip side, what we know about wolves, we know they have very intricate social structures. We know that if you kill certain wolves, it throws off that social structure of breeding behavior. Mm-hmm. It split into more packs, reproduce more, create more wolves. In other words, exasperate the problems they think they're taking care of. Correct. Uh, you'll have young wolf pups not learning from the elders because the elders have been killed. So they get more trouble and do more depredation. And, and it's just a mess. It's not, you know, it's not based on what we know about these animals. It's not science. <laughs> and same with grizzlies, the same sort of thing. These apex predators evolved uh, with little of any predation upon themselves. So they have, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of, self-regulating populations and when we go in there and think we're going to shoot one you go kill a mature grizzly bear and then you're, you're throwing off territorial things and breeding behavior and uh, what the cubs may learn and you're just creating a mess but that doesn't matter what matters is to show the hunters who pay the bills that we're trying to do something look we're killing grizzlies and wolves and that gets to another point to go back a little bit when you asked why some of these groups don't speak out. Mm-hmm. Also, this sort of compromise mentality that, um, hey, look, if we let some of them kill grizzlies or let some of them kill wolves, they're more likely to support, you know, mm. wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it goes against the science, but the science doesn't matter. And hunters on one hand will say, oh, we support sound scientific management but then you give them that science that's science they don't like it's like so many aspects in our society today they only want to believe the science that reaffirms or confirms our preconceived notions they don't they don't really care about science <laughs> you know we look at we look back i mean i have um uh friends and uh um um folks that are very much in the wolf world uh biologists some of the greatest biologists out there that that their theory has always been if we let them hunt then tolerance will just follow in other words this hysteria of wolves will go away and i what we've seen and we'll just talk about yellowstone you know the reintroduction of wolves and how that's you know kind of um perpetuated this whole scenario you know with wolves on the landscape but you know that hasn't been the case, right? I mean, this is it has it has gotten worse. The 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 politic uh, wolves have become so politicized and have become that scapegoat for everything else out there. You know, it's kind of like look over here, here's the wolf, but over here we're we're taking away your private, you know, your your public lands. <laughs> so don't watch the left hand; just keep an eye on the right. But I think that you know it's not necessarily true that if we allow them to hunt and we give them these opportunities then the tolerance will 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 show up will be there um it's just been the opposite wolf wolves and i think that and i i have told you know grizzly bear folks out there you guys better speak up quick because you're next 
And they are, you know, they're already building these laws and putting them out there in the state of Montana, Idaho, um, that's preparing them for the grizzly bear to come off the endangered species uh, list. And they're trying to get the bear off the endangered species list. So they just want to kill them all. And, and I'm just curious, is it, is it just this need to be the only predator on the landscape? Is that, is that man's goal? And I don't mean man isn't just male, but is that the human goal is to always be the top predator and the best way to do that is to kill them all or is it just a hell of a lot easier for an outfitter to kill and the prize elk and everything else when they don't have to hunt them they just kind of stand their roadside and can hunt i mean is that is that the end result is that what we're working for here is that what their point is because it still just doesn't make a damn bit of sense to me it's kind of a complex one i think it's a combination of our um you know, um, sort of basic ingrained biology of sort mm-hmm. of maybe a fear of predators going back in the day when, you know, we were more susceptible to them ourselves. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a couple of that and the, the, the social uh, and political climate and beliefs in our society. But I think a lot of it comes down to um, not as simple as saying, oh, we want to be the top predator, but you know, let's face it, our entire, I, I'm reading a book right now that's fantastic, by the way, and it's called, um, I sound like Donald Trump. It's fantastic, by the way. <laughs> no, it would have been three-letter words. It's big. It's right. sad. Sorry. He wouldn't be reading, wouldn't be reading a book. No, <laughs> no, let's not go there. <laughs> and now I just feel my politics. So this um, I love it. book is called Braiding Sweetgrass. Have you heard of this? What was it again? Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh, I have not. And it's written by this woman who is a, a Native American, but also a, an ecologist and a, and a wildlife professor, and just and trying to bring together things. But she she talks in the beginning about uh, the people that originally lived on this land before we Europeans came along had this uh, healthy reciprocal relationship with the land. Mm-hmm. They weren't to control things; they were part of it. And then we come along. We want to control everything. We want yes. everything in our control. Um, in fact, I no longer you used the term earlier that I tend to avoid nowadays: consumptive versus non-consumptive. Because I think everything is consumptive with us. Um, I agree. You're right. and all these backpackers, and I'm a backpacker. I roam the wilds, but uh, you got to build trails and have trail guides, and you got to make sure it's safe for people, and you got to have search and rescue, and that's all forms of control. You're right. Uh, and in a way, it's consumptive because we want to control it. We want it to be, it's what uh, Jack Turner called the abstract wild, it's a, which is an amazing book about how we've rendered the wilds in abstract. They, um, yeah, I want to pretend I'm going out in the wilds, but let's make sure I read the trail guides and follow the safety regulations and uh, follow the trails. And if something does happen, you will come along. <laughs> yep. Hell no. You know what I do? I, I don't tell anybody where I'm going. I yep. go off and get up roam the wild. And uh, I don't want anybody coming to find me. And if I die out there and become grizzly bear shit, that's just it. I want to be part of the land. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You are preaching to the choir on this one. Don't put me yet, on a trail. Let me bushwhack. Get out of my way. Yes. And we want people to, uh, we want to control everything. And yeah. You know, wolves and grizzlies don't fit into that model. They're, they're, uh, 
they, they don't cooperate with us always sometimes. And uh, as you may know, Grizzlies are my biggest passion in life. Yeah. And that's changed my mind about a lot of things. I, um, you know, Grizzly Bears changed my life. Uh, and they're so misunderstood. And same with the other predators. There's so many lies and misconceptions yeah. and uh, bullshit put out there about them. Um, and same with the Grizzlies. So a lot of it, I think, is based on the desire to control. A lot of it is fear-mongering and based on fear and lies and misconceptions. Um, and then a lot of it does come down to, uh, you know, wanting to, uh, the competitiveness, not wanting something else eating our fear. Mm-hmm. Which, wait, isn't there great irony in that? Because when I was younger, what you always heard hunters saying when they defended hunting was, well, without predators, we need to control these populations. Right. Well, now the here and they say, oh, we need to kill the predators. <laughs> yeah, well, it, we're just never happy. And I think you're right. We're not happy unless we're in control. And that's, that is, I think, our biggest downfall as a, as a, um, as a species is you, you can't control Mother Nature. You're going to control it to your own grave, I think. But I think that's a scary thing. And, um, you know, how do we... Is it something that we can, I almost said, is it something we can control? That's kind of funny. Is it something that we can change? Can we change the trajectory that we are on? I mean, let's just look at, let's look at Montana. You've got laws that were put in place a year ago that are literally, the whole point is to decimate our wolves. It's, it's, we want to kill them off. We want to get down to that minimum that USFWS said, that's all we need. We only need 150 wolves, 15 breeding pair in these states for uh, sustainability and viability. That's all we need. So that's, that's what we're going to stick with. And so we have made up numbers, and I will say that easily and without hesitation. We have made up numbers in these states that say we have all these wolves and we need to kill 90% of them in Idaho and we need to kill at least 50%, if not 80 to 85% in Montana. And then Wyoming's just sitting there going, well, just do whatever we want. And, you know, I mean, so, but it's this insanity without any reason. There's no conservation here. There's no reason for it whatsoever. But these kill bills are being pushed through by propaganda, insane people like Fielder, and we've got Bob Brown over here going, well, we got people up here that are poor and they need to be able to eat, and these wolves are going to kill all the elk, and so we got to kill the wolves so that these people can eat. It's in, This is insanity that is happening, and it's being pushed out there by these self-serving legislators, a self-serving crazy-ass governor, and Fish, Wildlife, and Parks who's sitting there going... Well, it's what we want to do anyway, so let's push it. How the hell do we change this? And how do you, how do you, how, I, you know, it, it truly does. It makes me crazy and manic in this aspect. But how do we change this system when truth means nothing? Facts mean nothing. The word conservation is BS. Science is okay. completely tossed aside. And it's special interest in self-serving, uh, self-serving people out there that are creating these laws and pushing them forward. So what do we need to do, Dave? I'm coming to you and I don't know. sitting at your feet and asking you, how the hell do we change this? What would you do? How do we do uh, this? 
you know, I hope. I was going to give a sarcastic answer. For I was me, waiting it, for it. I'm begging for it at this point. You know, another great Aldo Leopold quote was something like, uh, yeah, I'm going to paraphrase again here, but one of the problems with ecological education is one has to learn to live in a world of words. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And so I joke with friends, I, I'm going to get a lobotomy, so I don't right. <laughs> anymore. And, um, <laughs> You know, it's, uh, I just hope, like, I think we're already seeing the, these people are going to extremes with it. Mm. And I think we're seeing some backlash. Yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm really hoping that we can get wolves back on the endangered species list in Montana, like they recently did, you know, in other parts of the United States. Um, a couple of years ago, we won a big lawsuit to keep grizzlies on the endangered species list because the science and the scientists started prevailing a bit. Um, as far as my role, I feel like the only thing I can personally do is keep writing, keep sharing my passion and trying to get people to understand the truth. Right. I'm now part of a group called Wildlife for All, uh, which is looking to reform our system of wildlife management so that more people can get involved. Because I think a lot of people in the United States are opening to learning more about wolves and grizzlies and the ecology and the biology and how horrible we're treating them and, um, and getting involved in helping influence things. On the state level, it's a trickier thing. Yeah, because sure. Montana, for example, um, we've become like Idaho. We've recently gone much deeper red than we've ever been. Yeah. And I think it's partly because uh, some of the folks moving here and partly because folks that have lived here for a long time have been dissuaded by a lot of the BS. And um, why am I saying BS on your blog? Bullshit. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I, blog, I meant podcast. Sorry. No, but, I uh, got you. I got you. And um, I don't know. It's... Uh, it's crazy. This governor we have is insane. He uh, not only illegally killed a wolf, but now they're trying to illegally kill the mountain lion, and he doesn't care. And and the, the and he's the same guy that body slammed the body, yeah. uh, assaulted the reporter. Yeah. And you'd think that would make a difference, but instead, I see a lot of people cheering him on, like, "Oh, we love this guy. He's great. He kills wolves and mountain lions and assaults reporters for asking him questions. Those reporters shouldn't be asking questions. You know, it's like, yeah." I don't know. There's days I just got to pack up and go into the wilds and get away from it all. Cause you're right. It's like truth and facts don't seem to matter. No. And we've got to find a way to get, get back to that. And I think that in my opinion, you know, the wildlife for all, um, to me, that says everything, right? If we can get this together and, and everybody, again, there's enough room out here to be able to, I mean, let's face it, our, our, um, you know, our native Americans, they, they lived alongside these predators for hundreds of years, right? I mean, this is not something that's new. And there's that, that ability to, to see and understand that everything has a place and a need. And if we can't get back to that, we're lost. And in that aspect, I'm glad I'm as old as I am. You know what I mean? If we can't find time and space to... to to coexist with everything on this planet, we're doomed. And so we've, we, that's why I fight for, for what I do is that I think that we need to preserve that for 
um, you know, future generations. I mean, you've got a son, you know, it's like, that's got to change your viewpoint on life, right? And, and what needs to happen in the future? Yeah, and you know, I think so. The answer to that, I guess, would be, you know, helping inform and educate people, helping um, get more and more people involved uh, to shape and influence the politics, uh, getting more people to demand change and they understand the need for change. Um, you know, I think nationally, if you look at nationwide, I think the love for animals like grizzlies and wolves is there. Yeah. Yep. People quite understand what's going on and they're too susceptible to the bullshit. But um Right. And then the other thing is to start and there are groups uh that are working with ranchers and others to learn ways to um better coexist in non-lethal manners with predators. And I think those are promising. Absolutely. I think we're going to see that a little bit more like in Colorado and and where, you know, we're already seeing problems and we haven't even done the reintroduction yet of wolves here, but we have ranchers here that have had some issues and um, they're working with, uh, um, with ranchers who have worked in the coexistence field, you know, and, and have done it successfully and they're learning from them. And I think that's promising uh, I think understanding that that animals are here to stay regardless, we are going to fight for them to to keep them on the ground. We as taxpayers spent way too much money to have them go away only 25, 26, 27 years later. You know, it's just not okay. But I think you're. we need to educate. I, you're right. More. I hope you can understand that coexistence eventually should come to, like saying, how do you, coexist with your spouse or your child bill it's based on love right (laughs) we coexist by understanding and uh accepting and and learning to love and cherish what these other things are i mean i can't imagine a world without grizzlies and wolves oh god i can't either i can't either (laughs) some of my greatest experiences in the backcountry are simply because of grizzly bears um and black bears and you know, you can find that space. Just give each other a little bit of space and enjoy what you see. I mean, we have something there and we can learn so much just by unplugging for a while and tuning into the sounds and the silence, so to speak, of of, of um, the backcountry. You know, nature is so important and I fear that we're losing that by plugging into everything. As you and I were talking about earlier, as far as social media, I think it just, it makes us not really look within ourselves to find out who we are and who we can be. And I think we need to find a way to to teach people to unplug a little bit more and get out there. And that's part of the education you talk about. And I think, you know, your wildlife for all, I think that's something that we need to exploit some more. Um, and, and, and get more out there with kids and, and, and adults too, obviously, but the future is, is in our, in our youth and we need to, we need to teach them more. Maybe that's the answer. It's, it may not be tomorrow, but maybe it's, you know, that coexistence, we, we plant the seed and and they nurture it and make it grow. Maybe that's it. I don't know. And I think, uh, you know, even in the so-called non-consumptive world, like in the, uh, you know, I love to roam the wilds with my backpack on. Me too. And even that has been disgusting lately. I've been reading more and more about this whole thing. It's uh, they call it through hiking, where people go. Yeah. It's lighting. 
can as fast as they can and, yeah. and post all these selfies and, 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 and they're just missing the whole picture. They're just like trying to hurry through places as fast as they can. And again, it's a, they're not developing any kind of a special or intimate knowledge from the land. I, we have to look at the land and the wildlife and the grizzlies and the wolves and the elk as our partners that we learn from. It, it's a, this book I was telling you about, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah, by Robin, what is it, Robin Wall Kimmerer? Kimmerer. Yeah, 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 yeah. And one thing that jumped out at me was uh, her grandfather used to say he was raised by the river, and he didn't mean alongside the river. He meant mm. the river. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that concept. Like, oh, my God, yes, the the trees raised me, the hickory trees, yes. the maple trees. The, you know, these are the things I love. They raised me. I learned lessons from them. It's not just, you know, and that I, I don't know. I'm just hoping we can all start leaning more towards that direction um, where we see this as uh, part of us, which it is. Yeah. So, I think it starts here. And, and this conversation with you has been absolutely enlightening and awesome. And I would love to come back at some point and do it again. Well, and, thank you. I enjoyed it myself i love talking about these things me too i'm digging it and i'm gonna go buy the book actually i just i i popped it up on my computer while we were talking and i'm i'm ready to go i've actually seen the cover so i'm gonna do it but um i have one question for you actually i have a couple but you know we have uh wolves of the rockies has our, our 2022 wolf summit in yellowstone i would love to have you there if you'd think about it i would love to have you come in and oh, hang out I with could us. Make it, but as you know i've recently uh I've recently made friends with Mark Cook. And, yes, um, my boy. I tried to avoid it, but he's very persistent. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> he wouldn't let me say no. It's like constantly, Dave, let's go have coffee. Oh, we're going to have coffee. Yeah. We're going to go. I don't know. If I, Dave, we're going to. And finally, I did. And I'm so glad I did because him and his wife are just remarkable people. Yeah. I love them. They're, and, they're, uh, they're, he's my brother. There's no doubt about <laughs> it. Good one. <laughs> yeah, he's my brother. So you're, you know, you you have a place. We will um, break bread. Awesome. Have a great time. I'll show you Yellowstone and things like that. So you are invited. I think you would be a great part of the summit in general. But that's my that's my first question, and and we can talk about it as time goes. But there's one question that I I ask people at the end of my podcast, and it's just an odd little question. However, it is it is it says a lot. I think, but. If you believed in reincarnation and you could come back as any animal, what animal would you want to be reincarnated as? Oh, grizzly, without a doubt. Hands down. <laughs> I, I see that in your demeanor, which is funny to me. You know, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You're a bruiser. <laughs> Many years ago when I was struggling with various issues, fundamentally, come into terms with being gay. And uh, I went through this men's retreat, part of the, uh, I, I forgot the name of it now. Oh, good gosh. But it was a men's retreat, right? Mm -hmm. And they asked people to go out in this circle and, and imitate an animal that they felt they could be. Mm. And of course, went out there and pretended I had antlers and I bugled like an elk. Which I can do with my voice. Damn, you're <laughs> good. That's impressive. I, I was an elk. And people were like, oh, you're an elk. And one guy actually looked at me and said, I don't buy it. You're more like a bear. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you. On, on the, uh, 
they called me wild grizz and i was very proud of that i like because they're such fascinating animals they're so amazing they can uh and and uh okay i'm gonna blab one more time do it so you, oh i took off on this big trip from uh, Missoula to canada it took me three months about a thousand miles mostly off trail just bushwhacking through uh some really remote wild country only crossed three roads during that time and nice i was sitting on this uh I saw a grizzly and her cubs from a distance and I got as close as I dared and I crawled up to this big giant down spruce log and peeked over and there they were just like a hundred yards from me out in this meadow and the sow was um, feeding on some grasses and digging up some tubers and stuff and the cubs were, were wrestling and playing and one cub came over and tried to suckle her and she swatted it with her paw and the cub rolled and then this may be a bit anthropomorphic, but it looked to me like she felt kind of bad for her. So she walked over and started licking the cub. And, and I remember at that point, that was like a big moment in my life. I've, I've written about this. I started thinking that grizzlies are what they are, that I had always spent time in the wilds by myself. Because in nature and the wilds, everything is what it is. Mm. There is no society or created pressures and norms. Right. A grizzly might possibly judge me as a threat, maybe a thief, but it doesn't really give a shit about anything else. It doesn't care who I love or who I'm with, you know. And and then it hit me that the I could really relate to them because they're so misunderstood. There's so many myths and misconceptions. There's more, so much fear based on those misconceptions instead of people really understanding what they are. They're just bears. <laughs> and uh, at that moment, I remember thinking I had spent so much of my life defending and protecting the wilds and accepting those things. Why couldn't I accept the wildness in myself and what I was? Mm. And that, when I actually became comfortable with myself being gay, I thought, you know, who cares? <laughs> You're just a big bear. And you and I get it. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I actually had an essay published in The Advocate years ago. Now, it's a serious essay, but it's sort of jokingly called How Grizzlies Made Me Gay. <laughs> because they did. They, they changed my life. They made me think and realize I'm going to be who and what I am. And I'm going to be proud and I'm going to be wild. <laughs> and yeah, sometimes I get irritable and mean. Sometimes I even attack. But mostly I just want to be accepted for who and what I am and be left alone. And that's what we need to do with, with wolves and grizzlies and anything wild, you know? I think that summed up everything that we need to be and do in life. So you, you are, you summed it up. I think we need to just poster that and put it out there, you know? I love it. Dave, thank you so much. I appreciate you like nobody else. You are my new favorite person on the planet. Um, and I think I've got multiple things that you can actually write a book about yourself. You could call it Fears, Lies, and Misconceptions. Or just, we're just all big fuzzy bears. Let us just be, you know? Let's make this happen. Don't, don't pick me off. I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, the, that's the ending of the book right there. Dave. I am actually working, uh, you know, I recently earned my MFA in creative writing at the University of Montana, and my thesis I'm working on now into a draft of a book that I hope I can get published, and it's tentatively called uh, Out into the Wild, A Gay Marine's Journey Towards Self-Acceptance, and it gets into these very issues we're talking about, so let's hope something comes of it.
I'll be happy to help it, and we'll do another podcast when it comes out. Hey, well, thank you, Kevin. I look forward to meeting you in person. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's going to happen real soon, Dave. Thank you, awesome. thank you, thank you. I appreciate you like nothing else. Have a beautiful day. Mark's going to get jealous. No. <laughs> he, he can stay jealous. All righty. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thanks, See ya. Bye-bye. Thanks for hanging out with Dave and I and being a part of our conversation. If you guys have anything you want to talk about, anybody you want to hear from, please reach out to me at Kim at WolvesOfTheRockies.org, and I'll be sure to get back to you as quick as I can. I want to thank GVM Lighting and SKB Cases, and I want to thank you guys for tuning in. And as always, until next time, stay wild.